You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. It is my wonderful honor to introduce Martin Eberhard right now. He is the co-founder and uh, president of technology of Tesla, where they're making a battery-powered electric car. Sounds really amazing. I know we tried really hard to get a car here, but uh, we couldn't pull enough strings. But we did get posters. And hopefully some of you have picked up uh, free posters outside. Now, Martin has a wonderful background. He has 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur. He is a co-founder of Nuo Media and also is a co-founder of Network Computing Devices. But he also, like many of you in the room, is an engineer by training. He did his, both his um, undergrad and graduate work at the University of Illinois, both in CS and then electrical engineering. So without further ado, Martin. Oh, thanks. Is this is my cookie? You guys can hear me in the back? No. I'm on now? Ah, that's better. So, I, I don't know, I've been accused of being a serial entrepreneur. I don't know, these, these guys are serial entrepreneurs. I mean, look what they did. Well, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay, I started a few companies. Um, and uh, along the way, I, I've learned a few lessons, and some of the lessons I've learned, I continue to learn over and over again, and maybe there's more to learn. I thought I'd tell you the story of Tesla Motors and along the way point out some of the lessons I've learned um, as an entrepreneur now here in Silicon Valley for a few years. Um, and I'd like to start off with just my first lesson, which is to do something meaningful. Um, you know, uh, when I started my previous company making electronic books, it was in an era when the, the, the uh, Sand Hill Road investors uh, were investing in websites and they were valuing companies based on click counts. And I was making a piece of hardware and trying to sell that, and it was nearly impossible. Um, and now, uh, imagine walking up and down Sand Hill Road and going into a venture capitalist and saying, we're going to make cars. It was, uh, you could hear the laughter around the valley, that funny sound you heard about four years ago, that's what that was. Um, but, but to me, the only way that I can ever be successful at something is to work in something that, that I actually care about. Uh, and, to, and, and this time around, the something meaningful I cared about was oil consumption. Um, it was becoming, to me, increasingly clear that uh, we had to do something about our oil consumption, both from a uh, global warming perspective and from a national security perspective. And it was uh, interesting to note as I got to ask around and talk to people and so on that, that this is a problem that appeals to both ends of the po political spectrum. I like to put the slide up and say, one of these pictures here you identify with and the other one pisses you off. <laughs> and I actually don't care which one it is. <laughs> uh, but, but this is a, an, an interesting uh, uh, time when something like electric car appeals to both ends of the spectrum. Um, obviously, oh, the oil we use is used primarily for transportation, and the low-hanging fruit within transportation um, is, is cars. That's where we use them. And so I set about to, to see what I could do about that. Um, there were a lot of technologies on the table four years ago as I was looking about, and I came at this not as an electric car enthusiast at all, but rather just somebody looking for a solution to the problem. I did a lot of homework and I used these three questions as my metrics to say does, um, uh, which is the right technology, which should we be doing to try to reduce our oil consumption? Um, and it's about you know, uh, emissions and, and petroleum usage. 
Uh, and when you do the math, uh, in the end, it's very clear that electric cars are by far the best choice because they are far more efficient than other modes of transportation and because they move the choice of your fuel, your ultimate fuel, upstream from the car. You can make your electricity any way you want to. You can make it by burning coal. You can make it by uh, clean technology ways like, like solar. You can, even as an individual, choose to put solar panels on the roof of your own house and make your own uh, solar energy for your car. Um, there had been electric cars around, you probably remember them. This is the remains of the EV1s uh, that were crushed by General Motors when they took them back. GM had their excuses about why they, why they did that. But there was a ring of truth to what they said, that these cars didn't appeal to more than just the tree huggers and the geeks. And uh, I, I thought about that a bit and I said, why is that? And, and can we make a car that's a, an electric car that appeals to people that love cars? And I say, well, okay, imagine well, the, the Porsches. I'm dangerous when I get... Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> graphics editing tools. <laughs> but can, can we make a, an electric car that appeals to people that love cars? And that's what I set out to do. And maybe that's my next big lesson is, is be bold. Um, and, and also I think that a, a key element to be a successful entrepreneur is a certain amount of naivety. <laughs> because if you actually know how hard the problem is when you set out, you won't do it. Um, but, uh, but the other side of the coin is the hard problems are always the interesting ones. Um, so we set out to start uh, Tesla Motors you know, in, uh, in the middle of, of uh, 2003. This is uh, half the company there, uh, and that's the whole office. <laughs> um, as I go through the presentation, I'm going to run across the top line, uh, the, the, the date uh, of the particular slide, and as, as the company grows, how big it is. I'm not going to talk about that much, but if you're interested in kind of a timeline, watch that as I go through. So uh, I started off uh, looking at uh, efficiency and performance and so forth, and, and this is a slide that's taken out of uh, one of my early, early presentations showing that electric cars offer you the opportunity to, to break the compromise that you otherwise have to make between performance and efficiency. These are all the cars that are high performance, lousy efficiency. These are all the cars that are highly efficient, lousy performance. And electric cars get off the, get off the, the curve. Did my mic just die? Do you guys still hear me? No. I wonder what that's all about. Oh, there we go again. Hmm. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, so, so we, we began looking hard at the technology. We looked at, uh, at motor technology, battery technology, and uh, uh, looking to see uh, which technology would make sense, particularly in the battery space, and, and, and what would these, these batteries uh, uh, be able to do. Uh, we used Google to do some high-class marketing. <laughs> uh, we didn't do a lot of um, expensive surveys, for sure. Uh, we looked around at uh, what the competition space looked like. Um, I, I got to learn all about this ugly word homologation, um, uh, which is the art of making the car legal in some particular um, entity. Uh, and uh, you read the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards and, and you, wonder, you stop wondering why nobody started a car company in a long time. It's a heck of a lot of, of, uh, of, of stuff you have to go through. Um, we, we knew that uh, as a couple of, uh, of, of Silicon Valley engineers, we didn't have the wherewithal to design the entire car ourselves. We knew that we would like to, to, to work with a, an OEM partner to, to do the rest of the car part, of, part of, of our next car. And we looked around at what kind of companies would be appropriate. And, and, and Lotus was the obvious winner for us because of a lot of factors, but largely because they made a car that was the right form factor, the right size, the company was the right size, and they, their car already met the DOT requirements for selling in the U.S. Um, I did, uh, I guess, the Silicon Valley uh, thing to do. I went to the LA Auto Show and rudely elbowed my way into the Lotus booth until I found somebody whose name badge I recognized uh, and told him my story. And he was polite enough to invite me out to England to, to tell the story to the rest of the team. And I succeeded in convincing them that they might like to do business with a couple of crazy Silicon Valley guys. Um, 
we then began thinking about how we might package the drivetrain components that we were designing uh, into uh, a car that size. Uh, and by, uh, by February of 2004, I had uh, finished um, the uh, first version of our business plan. Um, and uh, it was a complete business plan, not just the technical side, but marketing uh, data and so on. And, and I guess my, my, the lesson I've learned here is, is that there comes a point where you have to put the naive, naivety aside and think your idea all the way through. Um, and uh, again, it, in the beginning part of my career, business plans uh, were required to, to raise money. And then they went completely out of fashion. And uh, fundraising was based on a PowerPoint presentation um, and uh, maybe a, a two-page executive summary. Uh, I recommend writing a business plan anyway, even if nobody else reads it, because it makes you clarify your thinking. It makes you think the problem all the way through and explain it in a way that, that uh, makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, maybe your idea doesn't. Um, with the business plan, I did the, the VC shuffle up and down Sand Hill Road. Um, and as I said, uh, uh, walking into a VC that was previously inve you know, investing in the, you know, pets.com or whatnot and suggesting that we're going to actually build a factory and make cars was quite hysterical. But they did want to go for a drive in whatever prototypes we might bring by. <laughs> Uh, and quite a few of them have turned into customers. Um, I, from the day that I, I uh, uh, finished that first copy of the business plan to the day that I had $7.5 million in the bank was six weeks. So that was a record fundraising round, um, partly by blind luck. I, I ran into a guy that had an interest in the field and had the money. Uh, and also a venture capital firm that had invested in my previous company and made money. Um, we began styling studies. Um, and we began looking very hard at how to package batteries. The, the, the crazy idea at the heart of Tesla Motors was to use the commodity lithium-ion batteries that are, that are inside the battery pack of our laptop computers and use those, uh, a lot more of them on a car, uh, to power the car. Because the energy density is very high on these things and because the, um, it's a commodity market and the, and the price of these things is being driven down and the quality up um, every day by, by companies like Apple and Dell and, and the rest of them. Uh, we opened our first real office in July uh, and uh, were able to you know, put together a mach machine shop and the like so we could start actually building prototypes um, and started working uh, on how to package these small cells. This is the early design of our battery pack. Uh, and the rest of the system was being designed on the computers. Uh, and uh, in, in late in that year, in November, we bought um, a, an Italian version of uh, the Lotus Elise that was here in this country that Lotus had brought over uh, as a demonstration vehicle, uh, but they couldn't sell it because it was not smog legal here. So they sold it to us cheap, um, and I took a Sawzall to it. It was a perfectly good car. Uh, the rest of our guys were scared to touch it, so I got to do that. Um, and we hired uh, four different automotive stylists to give us bids on what they thought the car ought to look like. Um, and these are actual photos from the four different stylists. And the winner was, was um, a guy named Barney Hatt, a young guy in the Lotus Design Studio. We like what he had to do, and he's the guy that did the styling for our car. Um, we immediately started carving clay. This was an eye-opener for me, uh, that, uh, that today in this world of, of, of computer-aided design, cars, uh, car designers usually carve clay still. First, we made a quarter-scale clay. You can get an idea of the size, look at that knife compared to the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just about then, we got our first uh, mule car running. Oh, sorry about that, now it's just sound. Uh, Sorry about the crummy video, but that, that was the actual first time that car ever drove, and that was shot with somebody's cell phone, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it is what it is. It's an authentic first time it drove. Um, the uh, uh, clay was finished. Um, that hum is bad. It's really too bad. Yeah, that sounds not that important. Um, uh, the, the clay was finished uh, um, by February and covered with this material called Dynock, which makes it look sort of like it's painted. Uh, this is our, the, the quarter scale model. 
Uh, and between uh, a driving prototype and a, a clay model that shows what the car is going to look like was the, the next step that allowed me to do my next round of fundraising. Uh, we brought in another uh, investment firm at that point uh, and uh, immediately opened our UK office. The, the, um, the folks at Lotus were, were having what the, the quaint English word is, is a redundancy, um, which means they're firing a bunch of people. Um, and uh, I, uh, I took advantage of that and hired a bunch of very good uh, uh, automotive engineers out of, their, out of their ranks. Actually, I, didn't, I wasn't just hiring the ones that had been fired, which kind of got them mad at me. But um, uh, I, I eventually rented um, one of these buildings on the Lotus campus. Um, and we now have about 35 engineers there between um, uh, body and chassis engineers and then manufacturing and quality engineers as well. Uh, and uh, about that time, uh, as a condition of doing business with Tesla, uh, Lotus required us to adopt their highly formal new product introduction process. Um, and it's, it's a, a formalized process that's been honed over decades of developing cars through several car companies um, that, that reaches into not just the technical aspects of designing the car, but, but finance and marketing and, and after sales service and everything else, all worked out and all the things you have to do. And there are nine what they call gateways along the way where we get together in a room and we review how we are on, on each of the parts of the, of the program according to where they should be by the spec. Uh, and decide whether we've made the gateway or not. Uh, and the requirement they put on us was that they would attend those gateway meetings as a referee and had the right to say, no, you didn't pass, try again. Um, this was their way of covering their own uh, behinds uh, with respect to liability. They wanted to make sure that they could stop us if they think, thought we were not making a safer, reliable car. Um, this is a huge pill to swallow for a, a Silicon Valley company where we fly by the seat of the pants for an awful long time. Um, but on the other hand, it is exactly what has made us into a real car company and not uh, just another bunch of guys in the garage with a welder. Uh, and, and I guess the lesson I learned here along the way is, is to remember that you're building a company too. Uh, I've, I've now had to have this talk with the company quite a few times to say that, you know, we're making this car and that's great, but we're also making a company. And, and the processes that we need to have in place today were completely unnecessary last year and will be inadequate next year. Uh, and this idea of, of building your company while you're building your product extends to more than just the kind of processes and controls you need in place. It extends to the culture of the company. The kind of little things that you do as a, as a you know, just as a, to relieve the pressure become institutionalized. You know, are we going to go out on Fridays and have a beer together? Do we have a party at the CEO's house on Christmas? Whatever. These kinds of things become institutionalized and become the core of the culture of the company. So in a startup company, you kind of have to put a little thought into that and build the company too. So through March, uh, we began uh, doing uh, real packaging into the car. This is actually very close to how the car wound up being laid out in the end. Uh, and we started building a full-scale clay model. This is just, I mean, again, it's just unbelievable. These craftsmen carving clay with little sticks and checking it with a, uh, a three-dimensional probing device on their computer. Uh, come May, uh, we had a hard decision to make. We've been trying like crazy with all kinds of ideas to, to make headlights work uh, using off-the-shelf units by just putting plastic around them. Um, and they looked like frog eyes every time we did it. It looked terrible. Um, and th the reason we didn't want to do a full-on headlight program, which we ultimately had to do, is that that's a $600,000 program all by itself. Headlights are just expensive. Uh, but we finally, in May, bit the bullet and, and spent that money. Um, we also became more and more concerned about Lotus's problem of the step over. Look how high the sill is on this car. And watch her get out. And she's been doing this many, many times. So, so tell, me, tell me how graceful you think that is. Yeah. Just trying to smile. Um, so at this point in, in May, we're, we're, um, 
we're aware of this problem, but we're also aware that, that the reason the door sill is high there is because that is the main structural beam of the car. It's involved in, in chassis stiffness, it's involved in, in the structure of the car in a crash, both from a front crash and a side crash. It's a big deal to change that. Um, we, by, by May, we, were, we started putting Dynock, there it is, this is aluminized mylar material on the, on the clay model. Um, and that, that model is finished in June and uh, looks a lot like a real car. Of course, you can stick your finger into it, but it, uh, uh, it looks, it looks, and it weighs um, probably four or 5,000 pounds while you're at it. Uh, but uh, we got a, a good look at what the car looked like. Uh, and we also built a, an, a buck uh, out of, just carved out of a solid material to put into the wind tunnel uh, for aerodynamic tuning. Um, um, motor development in August. Uh, and we started to build a mule car to carry a, a real body that, that matched what we had designed uh, in clay. A uh, mule car is a, they call them mules in the industry because a mule is an animal that doesn't reproduce, you see. Um, uh, so this, this, is a, this is a Lotus chassis that we, we hacked up uh, and then um, um, put our own drivetrain in. Um, and about in September, we decided we were going to bite the bullet uh, and lower the door sills. Um, and that meant redesigning the whole chassis. This is a chassis, and the way to look at this, um, the gray bits are the bits that have remained the same from Lotus. So not much remained anymore. The, the, the main rails, uh, the bottom rails, all the back structure, everything had to change. Uh, very expensive, um, but it, it, it made that door sill a lot lower, a lot easier to get in and out of the car. And, and I guess the, the lesson I've learned on this, actually I haven't learned, but I keep trying to learn, is, is, to, is to face reality. Uh, the, the sooner you come to realize that this is a real problem and it's not going to go away by wishful thinking, uh, the, 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 the faster you're on to the path to, 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 get, to correcting the problem and getting going again. Um, so here comes the, the mule body made of fiberglass and, and lots of Bondo sanded down very carefully and painted and it was gorgeous. Uh, this was just breathtaking and that car actually drove, uh, drove for uh, quite a few months. Uh, it was a bit fragile, a bit heavy, but you could really get an idea what the car was all about. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we had finished the design of, of the chassis and uh, began building a real car. Uh, this, is, this is a real prototype, meaning that it's, uh, all the parts on it were, designed, were, were production intent design uh, and started building that car. Uh, we were uh, coaxed into allowing our car to be in the movie Who Killed the Electric Car. Who's, how many of you folks saw that movie? Uh, how many of you folks uh, didn't blink and actually saw our, the five seconds of our car at the end? Yeah, <laughs> not too many. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of work, a lot of effort for five seconds of video of our car driving by, but it, was a, it, it, it forced us to, to think about uh, um, coming out in the public, letting people see what we're doing. Um, we ran that uh, prototype uh, after the main chassis work was done down the assembly line at Lotus. That was a, a big gamble on our part because um, if we stopped the assembly line at Lotus because our car has a problem, all the Lotuses behind it stopped too and we paid lots of money. So we took a gamble and did it and learned what it was like to run down the line. Um, and we finished uh, the EP in May and packed the thing into a crate and shipped it to California um, and uh, to uh, much fanfare. And immediately it went into a, there's a hoity-toity studio up in San Francisco that does um, photography for just cars, uh, RJ Muno he's called, and he did a, a photo shoot uh, for, paid for by Wired Magazine. Uh, this guy took a whole pile of amazing photographs and Wired went through all these amazing pictures and picked the very worst one and then they did a crap job of printing it and put it in the back of the magazine. Um, <laughs> so it goes. Um, uh, but uh, that was enough uh, to allow us to do a next round of fundraising and, and this time we brought in uh, some big name venture capital firms uh, to, to join the rest that we had. And, uh, in the meantime, we're continuing to build uh, prototypes. This is, I think, EP4 or 5 coming off the line. Um, and uh, July, we had our big public unveiling, showed the car at an at a, at a event we created down in uh, Southern California with lots of 
Hollywood folks there, and we raced these cars all over the place and uh, took them out on the runway on the airport and got going terrifically fast on the runway with uh, Hollywood stars in it, and the police got all worked up, but uh, eventually we got the police on board. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then it came time for our first crash test. So this is, we don't normally show these videos. This is the first uh, 30 mile an hour head-on collision. And what matters on these tests is that the airbag opens in time, that the, the g-forces on our crash test dummy are within the legal requirements, uh, that after the crash the door opens correctly, and a bunch of things like that. But in the first crash, it's actually a lot more than that. It's that when we watch the videos, and the, and the videotape from the top, the bottom, the sides, every side, and when we take the car apart, that the car failed exactly as our computer model predicted, because that gave us confidence that the rest of the modeling was going to be good. Um, August, uh, that summer, we showed for the first time at the fancy Concord Elegance down in Pebble Beach with a, a huge amount of uh, fanfare. This was just, a, a, we were absolutely packed the whole time we were there. Right above the hill was, uh, I called them the Maytag repairmen uh, over at the Lexus booth. <laughs> Nobody even looked at them at all. all the Lexus guys just watched our booth all day long. Um, August, we destroyed the clay model. Um, uh, clay models don't last forever. They're expensive to, to keep around, and we decided that it was time for that one to go. Um, and in August, uh, we uh, started to realize that we were going to have problems with our transmission, that our transmission supplier was failing us, that these weren't working, they weren't going to be able to make them in production. Remember what I said about lesson five? <laughs> I didn't face it yet at this point. Um, we started doing uh, uh, the uh, electromagnetic interference testing. This is kind of, kind of a cool shot. Um, and then the hardcore durability testing. These, this, these are calibrated durability tracks these cars drive on. They just beat the, beat the heck out of them. They have hills and bumps and corners and uh, salt water spray and hot and cold and so on. And the idea is to try to tease out all the things that might break on a car uh, when the general public drives it long before they see it. Um, here it is driving through salt water. Um, and finally, by November, we bit the bullet and canned our transmission supplier and uh, and found another supplier to redesign it. Uh, not, it's not just make it the same thing over again, but actually a redesign. Um, big, big deal. It still is a big deal for us. Uh, December, we were invited to show the car in the, um, uh, in the San Francisco Auto Show. We, how many of you guys went to the San Francisco Auto Show? You got, anybody guys see that? We got, had a great location. Those, those of you who were there, really. I mean, the, the cool thing is when he came down the escalator in the Moscone Center, and we were right there at the bottom of the stairs, we got that spot for free. Uh, the, the folks that put on the, the San Francisco Auto Show thought that if they had us there, that it would draw more people to the auto show, and they offered it to us for free, so we couldn't resist. Uh, similarly, we were at the Los Angeles Auto Show, this time at the invitation of Yokohama, uh, who wanted to associate their brand with ours. It's kind of funny because, you know, they're a much bigger brand than we are. Um, and I participated in a, a, a press conference with the governor and a bunch of the muckety-mucks from the big car companies, um, and he was basically saying, you guys, you know, the, the train's leaving the station now. If you, get, you need, guys need to get on board this clean technology thing. But he came around and looked at our car. He hadn't seen it once before. And this time, he, uh, he kind of says out loud to the reporters that were standing around, he says, this car rocks, he says. Then right about this moment when this picture was taken, and the reason I have this funny look on my face, he says, I'm buying one for Maria, Maria for her birthday. <laughs> so, yeah. He bought one, yeah. Um, January, we opened our factory in Taiwan uh, to build our motors. Uh, our, our motor is a... It's a it's a classic AC induction motor. You electrical engineers know what that is. It was, it was actually invented by Nikola Tesla, hence the name of the company. Uh, but our motor is a very, very high power motor for the size of it. It's about this big, about that long. You can pick it up. It's 250 horsepower. And the reason for that is that the rotor on the thing is not made of aluminum, but copper. Um, and the difficulty of building a motor out of copper is the assembly process. So our, our technology in the motor is how you put that rotor together. And that's where our patents are. And that's the reason why our first factory is actually making a motor, because we saw no upside in teaching somebody else how to build our motor. 
Uh, we also opened our, our Michigan um, uh, Technology Center, allowing us to begin hiring uh, uh, American automotive uh, engineering talent. Uh, we now have about 30, 40 people uh, in Michigan, uh, and uh, uh, despite the fact that they all came from Ford and General Motors and the rest, they're a far better crew than what you'll find at Ford and General Motors. Just the, the process of selecting and coming, you know, dumping your, your pencil, leaving it on your desk at, at General Motors and walking out and coming to a little startup company selects the best people somehow. Um, and uh, I guess uh, the, the lesson I've learned throughout this is, is hire the best people. And, and a corollary to that is when, it, when it's time for somebody to go, get them out of there. Um, I, I'm always, as a manager, I'm reluctant to let people go when it's obvious they should go. And by the time I do let somebody go, when they're out the door, the whole company's like, well, you should have done that six months ago. Um, but you need to balance a team with a combination of smarts uh, and experience and, of course, uh, the passion and enthusiasm for what you're doing. So we took advantage of the uh, winter of 07 to do um, Arctic Circle testing. Some of you might have seen a few of these videos before. I'll show some maybe that you haven't. But uh, th this is taken uh, in this unpronounceable town up in Sweden. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's actually not in the town, it's on a lake outside of town. It's a frozen lake uh, with snow on it. It's quite slippery. It's minus 30 degrees. The sun is only above the horizon four hours a day. Uh, our engineers were highly motivated to get the car working. And the main thing was to get the, the, the traction control um, and the anti-lock brakes working correctly. Um, so this is, this is sort of an early picture. Uh, very good driver, uh, a bit of a flail. Um, but, uh, I mean, there were some questions as to whether these cars would work at all when it was that cold. And the answer is they ran fine. Now, by the end of the week, we had the traction control working great. This is, remember, this is just about impossible to drive on the surface. Watch this guy come around the corner. By the way, this is noon. Watch how high the sun is when he comes around the bend here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's a, he's a, a remarkably good driver just pulling that off. Uh, our first uh, several drives actually don't have videotapes of the very first ones where we just drove it straight into a snowdrift. Uh, <laughs> um, this next test is a split-mute test. This is anti-lock brake testing. The left wheels are on pavement, the right are on ice, and the trick is to stop straight. Um, the interesting thing about this whole series of tests is that um, our, our uh, anti-lock brake supplier uh, was um, uh, is a company that works with lots of other companies. And what they're used to doing is coming out to the ice, driving the car for a couple of days, Modeling on the computer and saying, okay, we need the torque of your engine to do this under this circumstance. And the engineers from the car come and say, okay, and they go back to Stuttgart or wherever, and they work on it for a while, and then three, four, five weeks later, they come back and try again. And over the course of several months, they get the, the anti-lock brakes tuned in. Uh, in our case, because we have absolute microprocessor control of the direct, directly of the torque of the motor, when they said that we want the torque to do this under this circumstance, our engineers went tap, tap, tap on the laptop computer, and five minutes later, the car was on the ice again. And we went from a complete flail to anti-lock brakes in perfect shape in one week flat. They'd never seen it before. They were blown away. Um, so come February, uh, we got our first of our new transmission parts coming in from the new, new supplier. It's kind of late. That's already coming on. And we've got the tools uh, uh, being built for production. This particular tool is molding the bumper. Um, just to give you an idea of the sort of the industrial scale of stuff that goes on. Um, these are all at, at, you know, at suppliers. We own the tool, but the press is owned by the supplier. Um, and we began uh, building uh, what we call the validation prototypes. The validation phase is where you basically take all the lessons you learned through the engineering prototype phase and, <coughs> and build those into a car and hard tool the whole thing. So the body panels, everything are off of, of production tools. Uh, we started that in February uh, and finished the first car in March and shipped it to California. Um, and about this time, we're ready for... A, uh, the, the scariest of all the tests. There's a, there's a test for um, gasoline-powered cars um, that's uh, uh, called FMVSS 302, whatever that is. 
Um, and FMVS, FMVSS 302, are the lights going up and down here? Is that just my... <laughs> um, it is, um, uh, <laughs> FMVSS 302 was, is a new law that came into place after there were a couple of very high-profile accidents on the highway where a higher patrol officer was on the side of the road uh, and, and a truck or something zeroed in on the taillights and plowed in the back of the car at full speed. And the car spewed gasoline over the roadway and killed everybody. Uh, so the requirement on this is actually on the 302 is, is, is a gasoline-powered car has to take a 50-mile-an-hour rear-end collision, and then they turn it upside down, and it's not allowed to dump more than a, uh, maybe a pint or something of gasoline. That's it. Uh, 305 is an electric car equivalent. You take a 50-mile-an-hour rear-end collision, uh, and afterwards turn the car upside down, see if anything leaks out. There's nothing to leak in our car. And then they check for any kind of electrical danger in the car. Um, so what's happening right here is this car is parked here. These guys are listening to the radio, have no idea what's happening. This thing back here um, is a truck. It's going 50 miles an hour. It's just a moment before impact. Uh, this is a, a very violent crash, and I want to remind those people who aren't engineers here uh, that the uh, energy of, of, of a collision goes up as a square of the speed. Uh, so this is, this is a lot of energy. You're going to see something. This is, this, is, this is the kind of video that the car companies don't normally show because it takes a bit of explaining to understand what's going on. But here we go. All right, you guys. Nice radio listening along. Here we go. Oops. Okay, so it, it eats the back of the car completely. The passenger cell remains intact. This specially constructed truck gets airborne. It's actually all four wheels in the air crushing down on the car. And you think, you know, how the hell could anything survive that? Uh, and when it's all over, we cut the car apart in the back. We took all the broken stuff off. You can see the transmission is split in half right here. All the structure's broken. This black box here is a battery box. It has just a scratch on it. It's it. It was actually still functional when we're all done. It was amazing. And the G-forces on the crash test dummies were within spec, too. So it was, a, it was a success the first time, and that was a testament to the computer modeling. Somewhere when, when the, uh, one of the Sand Hill Road venture capitalists was doing due diligence upon us, um, they brought in a, a bunch of, uh, of folks from, uh, from Detroit. And one of the guys that had been out of Detroit, for, out of the car companies for a while, said, well, how do you think you can get away with you know, you know, t 10 or 15 car crashes? We have to do 50 or 100 at uh, whatever company he came from. And uh, another one of the Detroit guys says, oh, you've been out of business too long, guy. Computer models are much better. better. Even at GM, we only crash about 10, 12 cars. The models are good enough now. Um, by uh, uh, April, uh, with the success of the crash testing, with the validation prototypes going and so forth, we disclosed our most recent round of fundraising. Um, and I guess my lesson here is, uh, it's hard to read these colors, sorry about that, is to, is to aggressively follow all leads. This is something that maybe marketing folks take naturally, but as an engineer, the idea of just calling up a whole bunch of people and having them tell me no over and over again is depressing. I, I don't like to do that. And that's true for mostly for money, but also for hiring good people and in this business for suppliers and so on. And my advice to anybody doing this is just, just get over it and call people continuously. Uh, I mean, take Elon, for example, the guy that, was our, the, the guy that put the most of the money in the Series A round and followed in almost every other round. Um, I met him here at Stanford once. He gave a talk at some lecture series I was at and long before I started this company. And I thought he was an interesting guy and I shook his hand then. That was it. And then um, some years later, I heard that just through the grapevine that he had some interest in electric cars. So I just cold called him. I said, you know, hey, Elon, you maybe don't remember me, but I want to come by your office and give you a pitch. And he said, oh, sure, come on by. And, uh, and uh, this was after being, having been told no by probably, I don't know, 30, 40 people before him. Um, and uh, he uh, uh, listened to my talk. And two hours later, I had a handshake agreement for that round of fundraising. So it's just the way it is. Um, May, uh, our Thailand factory was up and running building uh, the battery packs. Um, and uh, the motor uh, factory was up and running uh, building motors. Um, and uh, we began shipping motors from the Taiwan factory to the UK factory to put them in a the car. Uh, it's a crazy supply chain, but it's what we have. 
Um, and uh, somewhere along the way, we discovered that we actually couldn't ship batteries. The, 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 the United Nations had a rule about shipping stored energy, and our battery pack was big enough that we needed DOT approval and also uh, um, UN approval to just to put it in a container, uh, to put it on a ship even. Uh, and that required demonstrating through a, a very intense program of, of drop testing and poke testing and crash testing and so on, uh, that the, these things were safe under all circumstances. Uh, and the, the, our battery pack is so big that their actual test procedures didn't even really work for us. So we had to help them develop the test procedures even. Um, well, just uh, fairly recently, we, we actually hit a home run. And the home run is that um, we got not only approval to ship these things, but we got permission to put them on airplanes. And that's amazing because right now it's a 35 kilogram limit for lithium ion battery pack on, a, on an airplane. And I trust me, ours weighs a heck of a lot more than 35 kilograms. Um, so this was a home run. We, we actually don't plan to ship many by, by air, but, but this, this showed that they were that satisfied with our, uh, our demonstration of the safety of the thing and their own testing of it. Uh, so we started shipping them at that point. <laughs> that, these are complete battery packs on pallets on the way to the factory. Um, and uh, just recently we finished our, our, our tenth uh, validation prototype. This is the one owned by marketing that's been here and there uh, lately. And then we, we were ready for side impact testing. <laughs> um, this is actually, too bad the video is not very good. There's a little spot right here, this little thing fluttering in the air. That's the, 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 tail, the, the marker light from the corner. It actually came off the car and just didn't move. It just hovered in space while the truck and the car and everything went beyond it. Um, but this is a very difficult crash because you have no room to absorb the energy of the crash. Uh, this is from the bottom. This is looking through the glass floor. And you see the truck hitting it in the frame holding up quite well. Uh, again, we passed these first time. Uh, and um, that's, that was the last of the series of the crash testing on, on, the, on the, uh, the first round of cars. And, and we're beginning to start testing the second set of cars now, just basically proving that everything you did works. Um, as we move into the, uh, from the R&D phase into sort of operating, buying parts, making cars, and selling them, we brought in a new CEO, and I don't get to be CEO anymore. I get to be president of technology, uh, which is actually a lot more fun. Um, and uh, Michael Marks has taken over that role. Uh, we did uh, just announce that we are slipping the schedule of the car uh, because of the transmission program. It's, uh, it's been driving us all along. Remember that face reality thing? If we had faced it three months earlier, we wouldn't have had this perhaps. Um, but good news is we just did our EPA testing. This is our car sitting on a dynamometer uh, do, with, a, with an EPA uh, representative there running the test and, and validating that we actually can drive this car 245 miles uh, on a charge, which is uh, probably triple, certainly more than double, uh, what any other electric car uh, uh, that's been sold could ever do. Uh, we also uh, uh, actually measured our 0 to 60 time. We can do a 3.86 seconds, and that's startlingly fast. Uh, and, it, and, and that number doesn't tell the whole story, because if you get into just about any other car that can do you know, 4 seconds, 0 to 60, you're talking about a car where you've got to put the clutch in, rev the thing to redline, let the clutch out in a way that's going to burn clutch, and then probably around 40 miles an hour, you need to do a very high-speed shift into second gear. It's the kind of thing that a skilled driver might be able to pull off about half the time, whereas this one, you know, my wife can do zero to 60 in four seconds on that car. <laughs> and she's not the lead fault that I am, trust me. Um, it's, uh, you know, you point the car straight and you put the pedal down and it does the right thing. And, and that's because the way that these motors work, they produce full torque at zero RPM. When, the, when you stop, the motor stopped and you step on it and the motor just does what it's supposed to do. And, it, and the red line on our, on our motor is, is 13,000 RPM. So it's like a motorcycle. So we don't even shift gears until way past 60 miles an hour. So... Uh, so we're delivering what, what we set out to do. We, the, the, the reason that we set out to make a sports car, I mean, really an extreme sports car is our first model car, uh, aside from the fact that I wanted one, um, <laughs> uh, was, was that 
I felt that to get into any market at the low end, like everybody's ever tried with electric cars before, was crazy. Uh, we think about other products, whether it's flat screen TVs or cell phones or refrigerators or whatever. When these things get invented, they start out at the high end of the market. And as we um, learn how to build a product as, as, the, as the supply chains mature and everything else, we can bring the product price down and reach a larger and larger audience. So that was one point. But the other point was that if you think back four years ago, the way that people thought about electric cars, there were two things that everybody knew about electric cars. One, they sucked. And two, they were dead, right? That was, that was, everybody knew that. And we had to change that perception. We had to change it fundamentally. So we couldn't make a car that was a little bubble car that could get you around town. We had to make a car that completely, totally went against the perceptions that were out there. And I think we've done that. I think that um, today, most people don't actually think either of those two things about electric cars. They're, they're still waiting for us to deliver, but they, they, I think that the, the, the idea out there that you can make an electric car, nice, it, it's real now. Uh, I was, uh, uh, last year at the Detroit Auto Show, I was hanging out with Bob Lutz over at uh, General Motors, and uh, he admitted to me that they started the Chevy Volt program at GM as a direct response to the Tesla Roadster. Uh, so I had an impact in there also, which, you know, from my sort of gl global um, uh, thing I'm trying to do here was a, was a big success. Um, so we've got some work to do left this year, uh, mainly transmission work and a whole bunch of other stuff. We can't do the last of the crash tests until we have the final version of the transmission. You remember that, that rear end collision I showed you? <laughs> transmission is definitely involved, so we have to wait till that's done. Um, and uh, begin shipping next year and begin focusing on our next car. So just a summary of my, my ideas of the lessons. Some of the lessons I guess I've learned or I'm trying to learn are, are these. Uh, do something meaningful, be bold, think your ideas through, Build your company while you're building your product. <laughs> Face reality every day. Uh, hire the very best people uh, and aggressively follow all leads. That's what I have to say. Thanks. So now you get to ask me some questions. We have microphones. See, do you want, uh, you folks who are videotaping, do you want the people asking questions to find their way to the mic or can they just shout out the questions? Okay. Okay, so he'll run the mic around. So because they're videotaping, I, gotta, I, gotta, I can't just ask, let you ask the question. Sorry. Um, how do you think about, um, maybe for this car or, or otherwise for a second car, about doing mass manufacturing, mass distribution? Are you thinking about partnering with other big companies or are you trying to do everything yourself? So, um, in terms of manufacturing, uh, we are easing our way into being a full-fledged manufacturer of cars. Uh, with the Roadster, we make a few bits and pieces of it. We don't make very much. It would be impossible for us to build a real factory. Uh, for the next car, we probably will, will do... We'll build a factory, uh, probably in New Mexico, to do final assembly, but we'll bring in the major sub-assemblies from suppliers around the world. Uh, the next car, we might do a bit more. Um, it's inevitable that we do uh, some kind of um, a partnership with other car companies. Even today, we are with Lotus and with other suppliers, because we simply can't make all the parts on the car. Um, and that's just, you know, just not based on any kind of philosophy, but it's the only way you can do the business. So it'll be, it'll be uh, certainly buying from the tier one suppliers that sell to all the other, our com other car companies and perhaps uh, working directly with one of the bigger car companies um, and yet building our own cars in our own factory. Other questions? Hi. Can you Where? Oh, uh, right here. Hi there, hi. <laughs> um, can you make Teslas uh, without using too much energy? 
Can you make the car without using too much energy? Uh, it sort of depends on what too much means. Um, <laughs> um, but can you keep energy efficiency in mind in the manufacturing so, process? So with the, with the uh, Roadster, we bought into somebody else's process already. Um, the, the, we're using Lotus's process, and they're, they're pretty good. It's, it's a fairly manual process, so we use a lot of human energy on, on that car. Um, and we don't, we don't have a lot of leverage to like, invent new processes yet, but as we grow forward, as we look at, our, uh, at, at building our plant in New Mexico, uh, that will be a LEED certified plant, and we will be working to be efficient where we can. Uh, we have to be realistic about it, so there's, there's a balance there. You know, if, if you come around and look around our offices today, no, we're not perfect. We don't do a perfect job of recycling. We don't, we're not really good about everything we do, but we try. Um, and as we grow up, we'll be better at it. This is sort of, the company can get better as we get to be a bigger company. Hi. Hi. I'm up here. Where? Over here. When you say over here, I hear you have the speakers. <laughs> Hi. Great job. It's about time. Is there a heater and air conditioning and how do they work? Uh, yes, there's a heater and an air conditioning. Um, the, the heater is just the old-fashioned way. It's a resistor. It's a, it's a piezo heater that heats the cabin. Um, and the air conditioning uh, is a traditional air conditioner uh, using a relatively clean uh, coolant. It's not the old-fashioned Freon. Um, but it's an electrically driven compressor because we don't have a belt drive off the engine. The air conditioner serves a, a secondary role in the car, and that is that, uh, that if it gets hot enough, it's also used to chill the liquid that cools the battery. So it's an it's a integral part of the drivetrain as well. Um, we thought about using a heat pump for, for heating, and the reason we didn't do that is it's too slow. It takes too long to get up the heat. Up here. Is this on? Um, I was wondering how long it takes to charge the battery, um, if you see this charge time as a barrier to mm -hmm. entry, and what you're going to do to either <laughs> combat that or change public perception. Yep. Uh, so, so obviously the, 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 uh, the charge capacity of electric cars has been the, the, the Achilles heel of electric cars for the last hundred years, no matter what anybody else might say about it. Um, and the first thing that we've done to address our problem is put the biggest battery with the best technology we could in the car. Um, the charge time of the car, let me give you some math, and you can kind of, those of you who can do the math, it's a 56 kilowatt hour pack. Uh, it can charge at 240 volts, maximum 70 amps. If you do the math, that means empty to full, uh, that's about a three and a half hour charge time. If you don't have a 70 amp circuit, if you plugged into your mom's dryer outlet, that's about 30 amps, so that's going to be, what, was that eight hours or something charge time. Um, so um, the limitation to charging an electric car actually isn't the car, it's not our batteries, it's not the charge circuitry. It's how big of a wire can you bring out of your house? I mean, a 70 amp circuit, 70 amp circuit is already, it's asking a lot of the electrical system in your house to charge that. If you want to charge that car in five minutes, I can't do the math in my head, but the wires would be like this. And you'd need to gang your house and your neighbor's house and all up and down the street to do that. So you can't do it. Um, so I think in the long run, the answer isn't that. The long, long run isn't to try to charge quickly, but to put enough capacity in the battery pack that it becomes like your cell phone, you know? Most of us don't charge our cell phone anymore during the day. You just go home and plug it in and in the morning you unplug it and use it all day long. And I think cars will be like that when the range is enough. 245 miles, and the way I drive, call it maybe 190 miles, because I don't get the most efficiency the way I drive. Um, but uh, that's enough for me to make it all the way through my day for normal daily driving, no matter how nutty I might be. It isn't a road trip car yet. I think that a that, uh, uh, road trip car you need five or 600 miles. But here's the thing. This technology of batteries, this class of batteries, has been getting better, getting higher capacity at a rate of 8% per year for the last 20 years. 8% per year. So 10 years from now, I can build a battery pack with double the capacity. That's a 500-mile car. And that starts to say, I, I, don't stop, I don't charge ever except where I sleep, which means at home or at a hotel. Um, 
So uh, first of all, it's very admirable, the whole project. Um, and knowing that there's a competitor in Italy and they're selling it theirs for $245,000, $100,000 is a bargain. Um, so the question is, and I think you'll have a bigger impact when you come out with a four-door, when you can actually bring it out to the mass market. It's mm -hmm. 65 grand, I think it was the price you were shooting for. Anyways, the, the question that I have was, uh, will you ever be pressured by lobbyists? Because this is going to have a global impact in terms of oil, oil, you know, oil consumption. So will you ever sell out for $10 million, the company, and just put it down, shut it down? Or? Um, I, it's too late now. <laughs> I mean, just imagine, just imagine like tomorrow GM comes in with a big old bag of money and buys my company and we all go home and they close it all down. I mean, they, they are already suffering so badly from having shut down the EV1 that they can't anymore. The cat's out of the bag. Um, but our goal is not to sell the company. Our goal is to, is to make a real car company out of it. And it's going to be hard, and it's going to take time, and, and it's going to be a long time before we can make any significant number of cars compared to the millions of cars that get sold worldwide. Uh, but it's the only way I know how to get there. Where are we? Um, yeah, right over here. How much uh, research and development, I guess, do you do on battery power? And what do, your, what do you think about the recent patent that was filed for the supercapacitor a few <laughs> weeks ago? And are you interested in that? So um, if you go back and look at the history of electric cars for the last 100 years, for the last 100 years, there's been a magic new battery technology right around the corner any day now. Uh, and almost all of those actually never happen. They remind me of like bubble memory or something. They just don't happen. Um, they, every, every now and then something does come around. The uh, nickel metal hydride batteries were one, lithium ion was the next. Uh, our philosophy is not to try to invent new battery chemistries ourselves, but rather to let the industry do that and use the very best commodity cells that are on the market um, at any given time. Today, there's, there's a, the lithium formula batteries are the best. There's a bunch of different kinds. There's lithium ion, lithium cobalt like we use. There's lithium manganese. There's lithium iron phosphate and some others. And each of these are better in different kinds of applications. Every time we design a car, we're going to look and see what is out in the market. In fact, we have, we have our feelers into almost every battery company around the world to know where they're going in the labs. And when we make our decision for the next car, it'll be based on the best batteries that are actually in production, mass production now. Uh, we're very enthusiastic that everybody's doing this research, and we love the fact that everybody on Sand Hill Road now is investing in, in storage technology, you know, in energy storage technology. It's a great thing, and hopefully that will generate better batteries for us in the future. But we have no religion about supercapacitors or lithium batteries or nickel batteries or whatever. Yeah. Your, your current roadster is unmistakably uh, laced with the, the Lotus design. It's, <laughs> it's, it's obvious that Lotus has their imprint on it. Mm -hmm. How do you, going forward, differentiate yourself as a brand? Uh, so th that's, a, that's a very good question. And uh, when I very, if you look at my early, early business plan, actually before 1.0, long before I just dared to show it to anybody, I thought we could actually use a large amount of the Lotus body panels. And it became clear to me that if, you did that, if we did that, we would be nothing more than those guys that make the electric Elise. Um, and so we bit the bullet and did an entire new body design. The only thing on that car that actually is common to a Lotus that you can see uh, is the windscreen and the side mirrors. And even that, it's amazing how much that windscreen makes you see the Elise in the car, even though there's no other body panels that are, that are even <coughs> remotely similar. Um, but, but we were locked into that because the reason we needed to work with somebody like Lotus on that car was we, we knew we did not have the wherewithal to develop the basic safety systems of the cars ourselves from scratch. We had to start with something that existed. Our next car we're starting from scratch. Uh, we've hired an uh, absolutely world-class uh, stylist to do the design of that car, and he's not starting with trying to wrap it around somebody else's guts. Yep. 
Are you looking at any other alternative energies to uh, enhance your battery packs, like solar energy or even fuel cells down the road? Um, absolutely. Uh, the, I mean, I'm doing it myself right now. I'm putting five kilowatts of solar panels on the roof of my house. Uh, people have asked, can we put solar panels on the car? And I say that, I guess that's a little bit like fins on a Cadillac. Um, you know, the decorative looks nice, but doesn't do very much. The, the uh, uh, amount of energy that hits the roof of your car while you're driving along just isn't enough to make a big difference. If we got pretty good solar panels and covered the whole top surface, it might increase your driving range by 10 miles. It's not worth it. Far, far better to leave the panels at home where they can be at the perfect angle and they can store that energy in the perfect storage system called the grid. <laughs> uh, and then you can um, pull it back off again at night and charge up. So I think that on board, not so. Now, now the fuel cell thing, I'm actually a, a huge... Um, what's the word? What's the opposite of a proponent? <laughs> I, I think that the, most of the, most of the uh, uh, talk about fuel cells in cars is bunk. Uh, it's a long discussion we can have some other time. Um, but I do think that the idea of a plug-in hybrid where you can use uh, plug-in electricity for some amount of your driving and some other fuel source, whether that's gasoline or diesel or whatever, uh, to, for those long trips is not a bad idea in the interim. So I think that's a good idea for the next 10 years, let's say. So, so in other words, I think the Chevy Volt's not a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, right here. Hey. Um, oh. I, there's, there's been... Sorry, me. Hold on, okay. where are you? Put your hand... Oh, there you are. Hi. Right sorry, here. I saw the other um, mic. <laughs> Fooled me. There, there's been some talk recently of exploding batteries. And I'm wondering, I know from the crash tests, it seems your yep. battery packs have been, you know, just a little scratch in them. But it seems to me that, that one explosion in one car turns the Tesla into an exploding Pinto. So, so you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and uh, uh, gasoline also explodes pretty well, too. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, as I've demonstrated a few times. Uh, but but uh, uh, we've learned over the years how to make our cars not be Pintos or those Chevy trucks. We've learned how to make the gasoline system safe in a car. And that's the same thing with Tesla. I'll tell you a bit of a story about that. When we started getting the data sheets from the cell manufacturers that made these batteries, they painted a very rosy safety picture. They talked about being able to take a crushing and a piercing and over voltage and this, that, and the other thing. And nothing really bad ever happened. And, uh, some of our engineers got more and more and more suspicious about that. And eventually we said, let's see what happens if. So we took a cell and wrapped it up with a nichrome wire and started putting some heat into the thing. And somewhere where it hit about 190 degrees C. Um, let me see, there's a word that they use in the rocket industry, an expression, an RUD. You might not know that. That's a, a rapid unscheduled disassembly. Uh, <laughs> uh, we demonstrated an, R, an RUD with that cell. And, uh, and after our guys went up on the roof of the building and put the pieces back down again, um, we d decided that this was serious, uh, and we stopped the program, the entire program, and, uh, and made it a requirement that our battery system had to survive a cell catching on fire for whatever reason. So, so if, I mean, later on, the Sony, when Sony had their laptops go, we were smiling because we've seen that already. Um, we, 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 we assumed that a cell in our battery pack will catch fire uh, uh, dramatically, um, and... Uh, and, and the pack is designed to absorb the energy of a, of a, of a, of a uh, rapidly disassembling cell uh, in a way that the neighboring cells don't catch fire. So to give you some numbers, uh, Sony has made about 8 billion lithium-ion cells so far. And of those, it used to be brighter in here. Um, and, and of those, uh, they've had eight out in the field actually catch fire in an ugly way. So that's a one in a billion kind of problem. Um, divide by 1,000, say divide by 10,000 for how many we have in the car, that's a... That's, Numbers that, that, if it means that your car coasts to the side of the road and you have to get a tow truck, that's one thing. But if the car burns up, then you've got a disaster. Uh, so, so we've designed the system so that should one of those cells catch fire, uh, what the driver would experience is a check engine light and their car would coast to the side of the road. Uh, and it can be repaired. 
uh, but, but nothing, nothing bad will happen from that. And then we've tested it over and over and over again. There's a company around here called Exponent. Uh, they used to be called Failure, Failure Analysis Associates. Um, that turns out they're experts in two things is really handy. They're experts in car crashes. They do the safety testing. We didn't use them, but they're one of the companies that does that kind of crash testing. And they are the most likely company to be called when somebody's lithium-ion battery laptop catches on fire. They're the ones that come in and do the, do the post-mortem and figure out what the hell went wrong. Uh, so we hired them and worked with them very closely to first understand all the safety issues of these batteries and then to validate our design by actually setting a lot of battery packs on fire. Other questions? What is your plan for distribution, and uh, have you considered licensing your technology to other companies? Um, okay, so I'm going to be a little bit, uh, I'm going to tread carefully here on the distribution side. Um, anybody in this room here is like a car dealer? <laughs> Are your dad? <laughs> Here's the thing. Uh, the way that cars are sold today are, are, are sold through uh, franchises. And, and in every single state in the country, the automotive franchises are protected by a very special class of laws. Here in California, there, there are automotive franchise laws that apply just to car dealers and nobody else. These were created a long time ago when um, the only way that Ford or General Motors could sell a car is that guy in a plaid suit that would sell it to your mom or your grandma or whatever. Uh, and um, and that was a deal that they cut with the devil. They basically gave away the right to sell their cars forever. Uh, the way the laws work, if we ever sell a franchise to anybody, it's all over. You can never take it back. If you own a Ford dealership, you ha Ford cannot come in to your territory, predefined territory, ever and put another dealership in. Uh, your children have the legal right to inherit that, that dealership in perpetuity. They can never take it back. They can't buy you out. They can't make overtures to buy you out. They can't mess with your financing. Nothing they can do. About the only way that they can get your dealership back from you is if you commit some felony. Then they can, they can come in and take it back. Um, so I didn't understand this. And I got uh, in, in that, in that uh, homologation phase, I, I got to read those rules. And I understood. I'm like, holy shit, I don't think I want to do that. Uh, so we've decided to sell our cars directly to our customers and we're opening stores gradually, slowly as we can afford to around the country that, are, that sell the cars and service them. Uh, we're setting up a service network to bring our own parts in there and, and it's difficult and it's expensive but I think it's cheaper and easier than selling into an existing franchise. Uh, it's uh, not pretty but it's what we have to do. Um, so you showed us that like uh, the car can really pick up speed really quickly just yep. by pressing the accelerator. Yep. And that's, I think, great for technology and for sports cars. But uh, for the average person, I think that's a safety concern. Is there <laughs> anything uh, you've done about that? Like the, the car also stops very quickly, first of all. We've <laughs> put very good brakes on it. Um, and it's got I mean, very serious sports car suspension. This is one of the joys of working with Lotus. Those guys make the best handling cars on the planet. So the car, car handles like a dream, uh, stops well, um, and has traction control and the kind of safety features we can put into it. Uh, it you know, if you want to get into a car and wrap around a tree, you can with pretty much any car. And this car will do that for you. Um, we, we do, uh, right now we, ha we offer a software mode on the car that we call valet mode. Uh, if you, how many of you guys saw Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Yeah, that, that movie changed my opinion about valets. <laughs> uh, and so we have valet mode that, that you, you hit a, a button on the, on, the, on the screen, and it limits the torque, limits the speed, and limits the, uh, the range you can drive with the car. Um, you, you, can drive, you can set it, but you can say, okay, you can drive two miles, you're not going to go more than 30 miles an hour, and your zero to 60 is going to be forget it. Um, uh, we toyed with the idea of having a teenager mode on the car, too, for the same, <laughs> for the same reason. We haven't done it yet, but one could. Um, I think that you know, there is a trade-off on cars. Cars are unlike most other products that we make. The cars are, in fact, dangerous. 
And you have to get over that. that uh, this is something that, that we face every day, that one day somebody's going to get killed in one of our cars, and we're going to have to that day look in the mirror and say, did we do what we could to make that car safe? Because it's going to happen for sure. Great. Well, thank you very much.